Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Venki Ramakrishnan, a Nobel Prize winner in chemistry, about his revolutionary work with ribosomes and about his personal journey to the top of the science world. Let me start off and talk about your 2009 Nobel Prize that that you shared and the work that you've done with ribosomes, if I've pronounced it correctly. Can you tell us what they are and why was that work so important? So if you ask the average person on the street, uh, what is a gene or do you know what genes are, everybody sort of has a feeling, even if they don't quite know, they say, oh, yes, you know, we inherit good or bad genes. And, you know, someone has really good genes uh, and they are what make us who we are and they're what we pass on to our children. Whether we're big or we're strong or we've got blue yeah, eyes or, blue eyes, or we're or good looking or not, right? Yes, to some extent, yes. And although that's a bit more subjective. But then if you ask them, okay, well, what exactly are genes? What, what is a gene? Uh, some of them might say, oh, there are these things that are part of our DNA. So then they'll say DNA. But if you probe a little further, you find most people, I mean, even most scientists, uh, even faculty members outside molecular biology will not know exactly what a gene is. And what a gene is, is a set of instructions. It's like a blueprint. And it resides on our, in our molecules called DNA, which make up our chromosomes. And when our cells divide, the chromosomes divide, and then we pass on uh, half of our chromosomes to uh, our children, and the other half comes from uh, the spouse. And so the child gets a mixture of chromosomes from parents. And so it's getting a mixture of instructions so instructions for what? Well, they're instructions to make proteins. Now, again, when you ask the average person, do you know about proteins? They say, oh, yeah, we need to get enough of those in our diet to be strong. Okay, but Or some of them might say, oh, proteins, that's what muscles are made of. But they don't realize, most people don't realize that the thousands of things that are the business of life, are, are carried out mostly by proteins. So for example, proteins carry oxygen from our lungs to, 
through our blood to the tissues where it's needed. Proteins make up our skin and hair, but proteins also detect light in our eyes. When we get infections, our immune system makes antibodies to fight off those infections. All antibodies are proteins. Uh, When we eat food, we digest them with enzymes. Those enzymes are proteins. So everything in life, you know, just about, is carried out by proteins in all the thousands of reactions. And every one of those proteins is made by reading the instructions in our genes, which is just a stretch of DNA, okay? And and somehow it has to know, the, the cell has to know how to read those instructions and make a protein. And in every cell, there are thousands of these large complexes. They, each one of them has half a million atoms. And those are called ribosomes. And what the ribosomes do is they read the instructions in our genes, sort of like reading along a tape. And as, according to their instructions, they stitch together a protein, which is a different kind of long chain made up of amino acids. So there in a nutshell is what the ribosome is. It's this big translating machine that reads our genes to make proteins. And we have thousands of them. They're so old that they go date back to a, a world before there was any DNA or any protein. Wow. You know, what we think of as an RNA world. And because they started making proteins, you know, our world itself was transformed into the complex world we have today. Now, another reason is because it's so old, our ribosomes are a little different from the ribosomes of bacteria. And because proteins are so essential, if you stop an organism from making proteins, it'll just die. And so there are compounds which hit the bacterial ribosome, but leave ours alone. And those are useful antibiotics. So if we understand what the ribosome looks like and how it works, we can also understand how these antibiotics work. And we can then use that to design new and better antibiotics. This is a a real problem because lots of bacteria are becoming resistant uh, to known antibiotics. So there's even though it's a fundamental problem in biology, you know, how genes are read to make proteins, it also has a lot of practical applications. Looking forward, and I know since your award in, in 2009, you've been uh, among many other things like being the president of the Royal Society. You uh, and your team have been focusing on taking this sort of to the next level. Is that correct? That is correct. So the prize was really for figuring out how the half a million atoms were arranged in space to make up the ribosome. It's a bit like if you want to understand how a car works and you had never seen a car and never could look at it, uh, you would really wouldn't be able to figure it out. You'd have to open up the hood, look at the engine, see how it was connected, you know, through the crankshaft to the wheels and watch the pistons go up and down, then you'd understand how a car works. It's the same with any large molecular machine. If you don't know what it looks like, then it's hard to figure out how it works. So that's what the prize was for. 
But now we're trying to understand how does a cell regulate ribosomes? How does it turn them on and off uh, as it needs them? Uh, how do viruses hijack the ribosome to make its own proteins and not the host organisms' proteins? So there are lots of levels of understanding. And it's always the case in science, if you make a breakthrough, it's never the end of the road because every breakthrough ends up raising a whole bunch of new questions. And then you, then you start ask, asking the next level questions. So in my book, you know, Gene Machine, I've, right. I said it's a bit like you climb a summit and you think you've reached the top, but when you get there, what you realize is it's only a foothill and there's a whole bunch of mountains ahead of you that you still have to climb. So science is a bit like that. It's, it's really an endless process. But you also get followers, to use your uh, metaphor, uh, you get followers that start following you and they start taking your leads and all of a sudden you have a whole horde of people uh, uh, advancing this cause, right? Yes, that's true. That's true. And, you know, people who found a field will often start a school. Uh, that's less so for me. I've had a, I haven't had that many uh, protégés uh, partly because I've worked in very small teams. But it is often the case that somebody will found a new uh, field and then there'll be, you know, hundreds of people in that field where before there was just one, you know, or, or a few. So that is, that is also the case. But then some of those followers will go off and found their own fields. You know, they'll, they'll get tired of doing a following and they'll want to be leaders and they'll go off and do their own thing. It, looking at my notes that from from what you just said, it looks like these ribosomes and and what you're the work that you're doing uh, goes to bacteria and antibiotics, as as you mentioned, uh, viruses, uh, cells, uh, and maybe I'm projecting too much, but but cancer is related to cells. Could this possibly in the future be a way of having cells heal themselves? Uh, I don't know about healing themselves, but there is quite a lot of work being done. So cancer cells have to grow very fast. You know, they grow faster than normal cells. That's what makes them uh, gives them that characteristic. And to grow fast, you have to make a lot of protein. And that means the regulation of ribosomes that occurs in a normal cell has somehow, uh, you know, gone awry, you know, and it's just out of kilter. So if you can find out how to re-regulate ribosomes that are in cancer cells, uh, then that would be one way of, of attacking cancer. So there is now an increasing number of people uh, who are working on, you know, how control of this process is affected in cancer and what we might do about it. I'm interested if we can sort of work back to to your career, and, and I want to start at the beginning and work forward. But one thing before we do that, I, I've noted your... Uh, interests, academic and research interests, have gone everything from physics to molecular biology to chemistry. 
you cover the scientific spectrum in 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 many ways. Uh, yeah, not, I, not often people do that. Yeah, maybe I'm a jack of all trades. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm much of. I wouldn't say I'm much of a chemist, though. I mean, people think I'm a chemist because I got a Nobel Prize in chemistry. And I like to joke that, you know, ever since they gave the chemistry prize to Rutherford, and who was a famous physicist <laughs> in 1908, uh, that knowledge of, a knowledge of chemistry is not a prerequisite for this prize. <laughs> but, <laughs> gotcha. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, the, the reason that a lot of molecular biology work is awarded a chemistry Nobel Prize is because it's about molecules and it involves chemistry. It involves molecules uh, carrying out reactions or recognizing each other or doing something. So, so it often comes under the chemistry umbrella. But I would say a hardcore chemist would probably uh, look down their nose at me in terms of chemis- chemical knowledge. But, but it is true. I made, a, I made a huge transition in going from physics to molecular biology. And I, I did that after I left Athens. So after I left Athens with a PhD from Ohio University in physics in 1976, I actually went back to graduate school at UC San Diego uh, to study biology for a couple of years before I uh, then did a research fellowship at Yale. So I, ma- I had to make this transition and while I was in San Diego, I was even taking undergraduate courses in biology because I didn't know any biology. And so even though I was technically in graduate school, I was taking like beginning undergraduate courses. So there I was with a PhD, you know, with all these undergrads <laughs> in biology, you know, taking the same tests and, you know, um, you know, cramming for exams and so on, something I thought I'd already been done with. Uh, <laughs> am, anyway. I, am I right, though, that uh, you got your, your Ph.D. In, in physics here at Ohio University at, in 1976, and then you, when you went to California, you did not complete that program, right? You, you left to, to, to pursue other interests? By that time, I felt I'd made the transformation. So, Got it. So the whole reason for going to graduate school was to learn biology. But after two years, I said, well, I've learned biology. I can now work in a lab. And I don't need a piece of paper that says I'm a PhD because I already have that piece of paper. And so I then did the next step, which was to do a postdoctoral research fellowship. And I did that at Yale. But that was in molecular biology. It was actually, that's when I got into uh, looking at ribosomes at, at Yale. What, what, what attracted you to, to that? Is it, was it just because it was so unknown at that time that it was so new? Uh, almost every you profession. Mean the ri- yeah, the, the ribosomes yeah. when you were there. What, 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 yeah. what turned that switch in your head and said, wow, this is something I really, really yeah. want to get into? It was almost an accident, you know. So I was in graduate school and I was chugging along. I didn't really have this fixed idea that I would leave graduate school. I thought I might get a second PhD. But then I saw this article in Scientific American by two people from Yale, uh, Peter Moore and Don Engelman. And the thing about that was Don Engelman had actually offered me a research fellowship straight out of my PhD in Ohio 
And I turned him down because I said, I don't know enough biology. I need to go back to graduate school and learn some biology. So when I saw this article on ribosomes, I thought, well, you know, he was interested in me when I didn't know any biology. So maybe now that I actually know something, maybe he'll want me even more. So I wrote to him. And the, the other thing was, when I did my PhD in physics from Ohio University, I didn't have the slightest idea what a ribosome was. But by the time I read that article, I'd had enough biological training that I knew it was really fundamentally important. It was amazingly complicated. Uh, people knew what it did, just like they would know that a car moves around and uses up gasoline. Right. But they didn't know how it worked, okay, to use the car metaphor. Right. So, so I uh, wrote to him and I said, look, you know, you actually were interested in me before when I didn't know anything. Uh, how about if I come and work in your lab now? And he uh, handed my letter to his co collaborator, Peter Moore, who was really the ribosome end of that collaboration. And um, so um, Peter then, you know, visited me in San Diego and, and then one thing led to another and I ended up going to his lab. And uh, he's been a, a very supportive mentor ever since. You you not only worked in his lab, but you worked in other labs around the United States and uh, also yeah. in, in, in Cambridge and in England. How did you choose where to go and when was it time for you to go? Okay, well, you know, so when I finished up in Peter's lab, I applied for 50 faculty positions oh and, I didn't get a, and I didn't get a single interview, okay, let alone a job offer. You know, I'd applied to a range of institutions, you know, from four-year colleges, like undergraduate colleges, all the way to research universities. Now, research universities said, this guy's working on this tough, complicated problem that's been around for a long time. And he's using this strange technique, and he has a physics background, and then he did some biology, but he didn't get a second degree. We don't know what to make of him. And so they tossed me into pile B. I think the four-year colleges looked at me, long, unpronounceable name coming from India, and they probably wondered, does this guy even speak English? Can he teach? You know? Yeah. So I went into pile B again, okay? And so luckily, you know, um, my professor at Yale uh, hooked me up with somebody at Oak Ridge, and I, I, I went to Oak Ridge for a year, which is a national lab. And, um, but that didn't work out because they didn't give me facilities to do my own research. You know, it was more of a service position. So I went there under a kind of misunderstanding, and I got out of there as soon as I could. And then I went to Brookhaven, which is another national lab on Long Island. And that, that's where my real independent career uh, kind of blossomed, you know, where I learned how to think and be an independent scientist. And then after about 12 years there, uh, one of those years I'd gone on sabbatical to Cambridge, which is to the same institute where I now work. Uh, but anyway, I came back and then I realized the Department of Energy was treating national labs in a particular way. They like national labs to have big uh, facilities like accelerators and reactors and so on that other people can come and use, they were less enthusiastic about supporting small independent groups to do their own research. So I decided to move again 
and I went to the University of Utah. And then I was there for three or four years, and I loved Utah, and um, my fellow faculty members were fantastic. But I decided to tackle the whole ribosome problem. And I needed a stable place to do that. Now, the problem in American universities or British universities is all the research depends on grants, which last about three or five, five years. And this was a problem that people had been trying to crack for 15 years without success. So I uh, felt that I wanted to go to a place that understood how to support very long-term work. And the lab I'm working in Cambridge is famous for that, which is why, you know, it's one, you know, 16, has 16 Nobel laureates, at, you know, for one small, relatively small institute. That's a pretty amazing uh, track record. And it's because they encourage you to work on very important, hard things, no matter how long it takes. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Throughout your career, uh, you've not only done the science, you've uh, written, authored uh, countless uh, papers and and, uh, a a book. Uh, You've really branched out into sort of representing science through your work at the Royal Society and now being president of the Royal Society for five in a five-year term. Do you feel all of that helps your work or distracts you from your work? If I were to be completely honest, I would say it distracts you from your actual work because your work requires really uh, a laser-like focus because problems in research are tough. That's why it's called research. You know, so you're looking at trying to solve something that's, you know, for which there's no answer. But at the same time, you have to, I have to feel that when you reach a certain situation in life, uh, there's a kind of payback time, you know, because when you're a young scientist or a career scientist, there are other people who are doing the business of, you know, administering science, setting policy for science, getting support for science, you know, doing public engagement so the public is aware of where it's, why its tax dollars should go to support science. So those are all things that people 
do, and they're part of the enterprise of science. Science doesn't exist in a vacuum. So I think, you know, you reach a stage where you have to give back uh, to the community, you know, that you, that supported you all those years that allowed you to do your work. So I think that is, uh, you know, very much uh, one thing. And the other is that it's a different kind of challenge. It's, you know, being able to talk to politicians and explain why certain, you know, uh, actions are important for science um, or why science should be supported and how it should be supported or uh, talking to the public about discoveries and the excitement of science. So those are all different types of challenges. And also you meet lots of very interesting people, you know, outside of science and outside of, you know, academia even. So uh, I felt that this was a, an amazing opportunity and a kind of privilege. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard to say no to a position that, you know, people like Newton and Rutherford and all these famous scientists <laughs> right. have occupied. I want to talk to you just a little bit about the, the fact that you're a person from India with uh, real roots in America and you're heading this British society. Is is that strange? I have to say I was pretty surprised when they called me up and asked me if I'd be willing to do it. And, uh, you know, it was an honor I couldn't refuse. Sure. Uh, but it, but it, it does show how open a society Britain is. And we need to remember this when, uh, you know, Britain is in the news a lot now because of Brexit, because, right. you know, people, the, a small majority voted to uh, leave uh, the European Union. Right. And so it's it's now in the middle of this huge mess. Uh, it's not even clear how that is, that's going to be implement, implemented. And certainly, uh, I didn't think it was a good idea personally. Uh, but... Uh, so, but so while we're thinking about Britain in those terms, it's also important to realize that it's only second to the United States in terms of uh, attracting people from other countries to come and work there. And when they're there, just like in the U.S., which is you know, uh, U.S. and Britain are both uh, meritocracies of of a kind, in that you know, if you work hard and do well, then you know, you will uh, get recognition. And so uh, the idea that, you know, a country like that would take an immigrant who came relatively late in life, you know, I'd spent, I was born and grew up in India, but I spent most of my life in the U.S. and then came to Britain in my late 40s. And so for a guy like me to be elected the president of one of the oldest science academies in the world, uh, that's, that says something to me about the openness of Britain, I have to say. Just one question on Brexit, and and I, I read an article that you wrote uh, back in August. Uh, there was at that time some concern about uh, removing Britain from the European Union would impact uh, science and impact what you do in the collaborations, etc., now that that has been sort of put off and put off and put off, and as you said, in a mess that nobody knows exactly how it's going to come out, 
Have those fears been allayed or heightened? They, they, I, we live in uncertainty, so uh, that is not a good recipe for allaying fears. Uh, I think, you know, they need to come to an agreement on how to move forward, which is, in my view, and I've said this, I can't say this on behalf of the Royal Society, because the society itself is a neutral body that's bound by uh, all sorts of regulations. But as an individual, I can say uh, that I think, you know, it's time to look and see if we should have a second referendum or whether even to uh, revoke this Article 50, which has this clock ticking, and, and take a long, hard look at what it is that we want and how could we uh, achieve it in a way that's not disruptive to science, to jobs, uh, to the economy, uh, et cetera. I, you know, uh, in terms of academics, I'm actually more sympathetic to the concerns of the people who voted for Brexit. You know, many of them feel their lives have not improved as a result of globalization and, you know, there's this disparity and there's, you know, similar polarization in America too, you know, and uh, you, you can see that, you know, with Trump and the Democrats and so on. And it's a, it's a similar kind of polarization between this very urban cosmopolitan elite and uh, people in more rural areas who are, you know, uh, feeling more of a pinch. And, uh, but that's a problem that needs to be solved uh, separately, and I don't think leaving the EU is going to make solving it easier. Uh, of course, you know, other people have different views, but that's my view. Finally, I want to touch base with you on you, your family. I, I looked at what your family does, and it's sort of a who's who of accomplishments. <laughs> is it true that <laughs> is it true that your your wife is a uh, author of children's books? Yes, she's published about thirty of them, and I think some of them she's just illustrated. About half she's just illustrated, and the other half she's both written and illustrated. And I should say she got her bachelor's of fine arts from Ohio University, and that's where I met her. So my guess is that she's one of the more successful alumni uh, of the School of Fine Arts. And she's a little miffed that I, I'm the only one who gets alumni newsletters and she doesn't get anything. It's like they've forgotten about it. Well, I'm, I'm going to put in the word. Maybe we'll put in the fix and, and allow her to, to, to start get, getting those. But your, your children also, is it true uh, – your son is a cellist, and and you you have a daughter, and what does she do? So my daughter went to Oberlin College, uh -huh. so we're keeping it in Ohio. Yes, and uh, then she went to Oregon and got a, a medical degree. So she graduated in English, in English literature, and then went to medical school, and now she's a doctor in Portland, wow. Oregon. My son went in the other direction. He went to Harvard and got a physics degree and then became a cellist. He went to the Juilliard School of Music and became a cellist. So. Ama <laughs> amazing family, amazing family. I'm sure you're proud of each and every one of them. I, I can't take too much credit, but I, 
at least uh, I didn't stand in their way, I hope. <laughs> one last one last question, and that is the the whole idea of science, and you've spent your life in science. Are you encouraged that science is flourishing and discovery is flourishing and going forward at a reasonable rate? Or, you know, we see debates like on whether there's climate change or not and the debates with, with science and, and politics all the time. Are, are, you, are you comfortable with science where it is today? I'm comfortable with this actual science itself. Science itself is really flourishing. And the fact that, you know, uh, women and other groups are entering science in increasing numbers uh, means we're, we're going having a larger pool of talent, you know, for science. Uh, so I, I'm happy with that. What I'm not happy about is that what the internet and social media and other uh, modes of dissemination have made is they've made it possible for anyone to have a voice regardless of whether they know anything or not, okay? And it's very hard to tell who really knows something, who's an expert, who really understands the problem, and somebody who's just using scientific words and jargon. So you get this in lots of things. You get it in climate change where people are skeptical, uh, even though the majority of people in the who actually work in the field are completely convinced. Another case is vaccinations. You know, right? People have forgotten that people were dying of smallpox and polio. I mean, I come from a generation where uh, many of my classmates had polio. You know, and no one, you know, polio is almost wiped out. Okay, it just has a few pockets. Again, because of prejudice, you know, they they don't want to get vaccinated. So. Now you have people who don't want to vaccinate them, their kids, you know. So this is all pseudoscience, you know. They 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 believe in some crackpot minority view, and it actually could be quite harmful, not just to themselves, but to people around them or to society at large. So how to distinguish between what I would call bogus information and pseudoscience? Uh, from the really hard work that scientists put in to actually find out facts, that's going to be a challenge. And that's a challenge that scientists have to accept. They have to go out and edge, you know, engage with the public and engage with people. They can't just afford to sit in their labs. I mean, many of them can, but a certain number of scientists have to go out and get the message out of what is happening, what is true, what is not true, etc., that seems like a great place to end. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm looking forward to my visit. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Venki Ramakrishnan about his Nobel Prize winning work with ribosomes and his personal journey as a scientist. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so 
please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets.